of that and the live TV edutainment to help you become emotionally whole, emotionally healed and emotionally healthy there is nothing that I can say to set you up for this one this one this Krishna Davenport gives us the 411 about how to get onto black how to get onto Wall Street being black and then once you get the job how do you stay there Everybody wants a rich life. Everybody wants that six or that seven figure job. Chris knocks it out the park. There's nothing that I can say to set you up for this one. You just got to so watch. Tell me like maybe three or four subjects that you want to cover today from the aspect of one, how hard it is to get onto, Black, onto Wall Street. Okay. And then... What are the difficulties that you face once you're there? Um, so three things, let me think. Um, well, the first one is exactly the, probably the biggest one mm -hmm. is getting the on Wall Street. And so I had kind of a <laughs> crazy way how I got in there. I was first. I started working at what they would call a chop shop. So it's kind of like if you ever saw the movie The Boiler Room with Vin Diesel. It's a, a it's kind of like they do a lot of illegal stuff. But I was 22, so I didn't really understand that. Mm -hmm. And so that was my introduction to Wall Street outside of obviously my going to college and getting this economics degree. I didn't understand how Wall Street worked. So I worked at a chop shop and I worked there for six months and then the SEC came and kicked down the door. Really? <laughs> so everybody who was registered was arrested. Like it was a big deal. And I still didn't get it because I was like, I just came to work. I made my $500 a day and <laughs> you know, I went about my business. So that's obviously not the right way to get into Wall Street, but that's, okay. that was my path. So was Wall Street a dream of yours? Did you always want to be? No. Um, when I went to college and through high school, so high school in New York, you take up majors pretty, like around your junior year, you start kind of developing what your major is going to be in college. And I went through a program in Manhattan called Sponsors for Educational Opportunities. And through that program and through my high school, I have been taking the steps to become a computer engineer. Okay. So I was in junior year, I was already taking college classes for to be a computer engineer. Mm -hmm. I went to my, I got into Hollins, that's the university I went to. Um, I got in in early, my early senior year and I went with the, even though it was a liberal arts college, I went the, the intentions of being a computer engineer. And freshman year, second semester, I had to, I, you had to take econ to begin with. Liberal arts, you got to take it. Second semester, freshman year, I read a book 
called the walk down Wall Street. And I was like, that's it. I don't want to be an engineer anymore. I want to work on Wall Street. I'm from New York. It's the it's perfect for me. And I went immediately and changed my major. <laughs> and, and then I was like, I'm now I'm the econ major, and I'm going to um, have a business minor. That's what I'm going to do. And my parents didn't get it because they're in edu- my mom's in education, so she thought I would, you know, become an engineer and I teach. And I was like, no. It's all about econ for me. I'm going to be on Wall Street. So that's kind of what started the spark. Um, I was really into computers and and engineering, but I just was like, I can't see myself doing this all the time. But I could see myself being on Wall Street handling money, mainly because I used to be very frugal. I mean, I'm still frugal, but I was really frugal back then because I didn't have any money. I was a college student. (laughs) But then I was like, I could be frugal my money and make a whole lot of money and that was what you know typical 90s kid right I'm like the <laughs> that typical generation where we started chasing money as opposed to chasing like real dreams it was all about oh how much money can I make right, and right I, we are the Diddy generation you know that whole bad boy generation we're like I want fancy shoes and fancy cars and fancy coats I want to be at all the clubs that was what my Wall Street life consisted of um, and yeah, how, and how did, did this first job, I'll say, not, not job, 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 did this first job find you or did you find it? I found it in the newspaper. And so funny, I found it in the newspaper in the one ads. I don't even think they have those anymore, but in the one ads. And it was like, if you're interested in stocks and bonds and trading futures. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's me. I'm going. Now, this is the real kicker. I lived in I lived in Brooklyn, okay. and the job was in Suffolk County in Long Island. I didn't drive. I had to take the the Long Island. I had to take the subway to the Long Island Railroad, and for me to get to work at eight o'clock, I had to leave home at five thirty in the morning. Okay, so that's on, how on, hard on, I wanted on, it. Oh, <laughs> so okay, wait, when wait. I say dream, people are people who people. Our dream chasers when they go to Wall Street, you have to be. Like, you have to have this bloodthirst or thirst for money because you have to make all these adjustments. I mean, obviously, I was 22 years old. I was three. Are you you holding your phone in your hand? Yes. Because the light is... Oh, you know what? Let me turn the light down. I can... it's, It's... it's bright. I was gonna it's say very bright. I was gonna say, or just turn around so that you're facing that one and see if there's one behind you also. Let's see if that's better. Because it was the light on the ceiling that was just shining. In that better? It started to yes. I just turned it off. We have dim- I have a dimmer. Okay. So anyway, that was yeah. That was Wait my. A minute. So you intro. left. You left home at what time? Five thirty. To get to work by eight o'clock. Every day. Girlfriend wanted that job. I wanted the job. I didn't realize it was a bad job <laughs> and an illegal job, but I wanted that job. So I did it. And um, once the SEC came in and kicked down the door, I kind of got a better idea of what I shouldn't be doing. And I had a really good mentor. Though what he was doing wasn't technically legal, I had a good mentor. And he had given me the tools I needed to get into a real firm. 
So from there, I went to um, a slight, a small, what they call a boutique firm. And I was able to really learn the business the right way. Because I knew the business, but I didn't know the right way. I was able to really learn how to trade stocks the right way, how to get clients the right way. And after I took my Series 7 there, I left and moved on to Morgan Stanley. So I went from chop shop, illegal, small firm, to one of the biggest brokerage houses in the country. How quickly did you do that? I did that in a period of two and a half years. Because this sounds like it went very fast. Yeah. It went very fast. And I made it. And throughout all of that, one of the things about being, oh, I guess, quote unquote, Wall Streeter, is you have to have the ability to, and back then it was even more important, to network, right? You have to be in everybody's face, talking all the time, talking, talking, talking. So being at that small firm, I mean, being at the chop shop, then being at the smaller firm allowed me access to people I probably would never have had access to. So, for instance, one of the people I met at Bluestone, at, that was the name of the firm, Bluestone, mm-hmm. was Martha Stewart. I wouldn't have had access to Martha Stewart any other way. But I had access to her, and I was able to talk to her for even for that five minutes. It gave me, it gave me the information I needed as a woman. And then more specifically as a black woman to be like, these are the changes I have to make or I won't be able to succeed in this business. But one of the things that I and why I always say my mentor, um, Chris, was really good is because from day one, he told me you're a woman and you're black and nobody's going to want you in this business. So you have got to work 10 times harder, which is why 530 in the morning I was up and on that train. I've never missed a day. I never called out sick. I worked, I worked, I worked. When I got to Morgan Stanley, some people were like, all right, you've officially made it. But I didn't, I I hadn't made it at that point. Even though I was at this really big firm, I still was in the office at eight o'clock in the morning. I would go out and drink with my friends, whatever, whatever, like the networking stuff, go back to the office. There were many nights I didn't get home till nine and 10 o'clock at night or even one or two in the morning because if clients come in and then I would go right back to work. So it it was all about me being dedicated to what I wanted in terms of success at that time. So things have changed. I'm much older. I'm much smarter. (laughs) Um, Aren't we all? (laughs) um, Yeah, right? As you age in whatever business, you get better and smarter and and that helps. But, um, yeah, so that's how I started on Wall Street. That's how I got in. Is that the typical way for an African-American female to get a job on Wall Street? Not anymore. But what you do need is you need, you still need to have this drive. Because when people see us, they don't see us as Wall Street people. Doesn't It doesn't matter that there are several, not too many, but maybe a handful of um Wall Street women who change the narrative, have changed the narrative, or minority-owned firms, they don't get the same play as a Morgan Stanley. Even though they can be some of the biggest movers and shakers, they don't get the same play. So it's not the same as in you need to take these crazy steps that I took, but what you do have to have is that drive. Like you have to want it enough to say, Listen, I'm applying for this job, and if they want me to come in today at 2 o'clock, well, <clears throat> I'm sick, I got to go. Because 
that's one of the things that all Wall Street people look at. Like, what's your motivation? Is your motivation just to get a check? Because if it's just to get a check, you could go anywhere. But if your motivation is to be in this specific firm, you still have to show and prove. Mm. You know, and it's, it's sad that it's harder for us because as soon as they see you come through the door, they're like, oh. Every firm I've ever interviewed for, they heard my name and they had a mental picture. She's Indian. She's Indian and American. And then I walk in the door and they're like, well, how'd you get the name Krishna? It's a great icebreaker, but it's const It's something that's constant because people have a mental picture before I even come in. And then they see my background, they're like, okay, okay, okay. I really believe a lot of people interview me based off my name. They hear Krishna, they're like, oh, this Indian girl. Okay, we'll have her come in. Yeah. And then I get there and I'm not Indian. And, you know, I've had managers tell me, I thought you were Indian. I didn't think you were black. I had a manager, one of my managers at Morgan Stanley, specifically tell me he didn't care for me and another one of my colleagues because we were black, but we did good work, so he couldn't do anything about it. And that's what he said. I can't do anything about it because you do good work. So there are so many obstacles as a black young woman, and then the next step is you become a black woman and you get married. They just think it, they, it takes you down a peg. And then you have a child, and it takes you down a peg. Really? So, yeah. I can do all the stories that I could tell. You probably don't have time for the stories no, I could tell. No. Okay, hold on. Why does that take us down a peg? So, there's a pecking order on Wall Street. It's black, I mean, white men, white women, with no children and no husband. Black men, black women, black women with a husband, black women with husband and children. So every time you you go down the peg, you don't start out high to begin with, but what they expect, and they expect it of most women, what they expect is you aren't coming back if you have a baby. You're going to stay home. You're not going to come back. When I have my, I have two sons. When I have my first son, mm -hmm. And listen, it's in their eyes, it's a joke, but in my eyes, it was telling. There was an office pool that was approximately $5,000 betting if I would come back. And they, really? they did it for every woman, but it was very telling as the only black woman in the firm, yes. in this position of management, that they were taking this pool. Why would you take this pool? I was 20-something years old. Of course I'm coming back. Like, I was, I think I was 29. or I was almost 30. Mm -hmm. She's not going to come back. They had it all figured out. So in that, they started making all these plans because they just bet that I wouldn't come back. And they needed to have somebody to take over my management position in case I didn't come back. So that's one thing. Um, when you... Women in the business of no matter the race become somewhat of a liability when they get married because um, a lot of the men take care of their wives so they assume that's going to be the same thing for you. They don't assume that you might be the one making the most money. They just assume oh, she got married, she's not coming back. Right. So the minute you get engaged, there's something. The minute you announce, when I told my boss that I was getting, that I was pregnant, he made an announcement over the loudspeaker 
my girl is pregnant. And I was like, who's your girl and who's pregnant? <laughs> and he was like, I'm talking about you. And I was like, we are having the baby and I'm not a girl. I'm a grown woman. Yes. And he was like, oh, I didn't even think anything about it. But that's the announcement he made. He didn't make that announcement when my colleague who was white was pregnant. And for him, it was a term of endearment. He loved me. He cared about me. And I was having the first baby in this department over years. Okay. But that wasn't the right way to do it. They don't, he didn't get it. He still doesn't get it, but he didn't get it back then. Or when a client, I had a client tell my manager who approved her maternity leave. And I was like, the federal government? <laughs> And to them, these white men, it wasn't, they weren't trying to be mean or anything, but in their mind, they have this control over who I am or what I do because it affects their business. And so there are so many obstacles and so many crazy stories, I can tell you. Um, I've had white women tell me, um, I had one particular white woman actually tell me that she didn't understand how I could afford a, I had a Christian, I have a Christian Dior like briefcase. Mm -hmm. I don't understand how you can afford that. I know what you make. I don't care how you can afford your stuff. Why do you care about mine? This same woman sat um, with a colleague and myself, another black woman, and told us that she understood what it meant to be black because she grew up Italian on Long Island. And we were like, what do these things have to do with each other? So it's this very, like, you walk a very fine line mm -hmm. in this business of cursing somebody out and losing your job <laughs> or keeping your job and being quiet. But as I've gotten older, I've realized that I don't have to, respond. I don't have to stand for those things. And I don't, sometimes I don't respond, but there are also times when I just don't have to stand for it. So at my last firm, I had a manager who didn't like me and he did everything. In, I was pregnant, by the way. He, he did everything in his power through my pregnancy, through my um, maternity leave to basically get me laid off. I've been with the firm seven years, never had a disciplinary problem, never had anybody complain about me, never had a client say anything mean to me, uh, mean about me or mean to me. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden he took over and there was some issue. So you face those things and you figure out your steps and everybody's steps are different. Some women keep it quiet because they, you know, I'm going to cash my check and I'm going to go home. Some women like myself are very vocal. I was very vocal in my latter um, years at that firm because I saw so many things happening that didn't make sense. And I had been in the business like 15 years at that point and I was like, what are y'all doing? Like, who goes back to paper from the internet? Like I had all these questions and so I was very vocal and I don't think it sat well. And when they brought in that manager, he didn't like women period. Cause it wasn't, I wasn't the only woman he harassed, but um, it was it was more specific to me as a black person, the only one in the department. And it just, you know, it was, it was good and bad because sometimes he got his handed to him and sometimes he won that battle. And finally, um, I think my son was about one years old when I decided I just couldn't do it anymore. Like I was like, if I stay here, 
I'm hurting myself by staying in a place with someone who wakes up with the intentions of hurting me. Despite my long career, he doesn't have my experience, and but he has the ear of a person who can jeopardize my job. So I asked for a layoff. And honestly, it was the best thing I ever did. It was one of the best things I've ever done in my Wall Street career. It's to say, I need a break <laughs> and pay me for it. So. So what would you say is the toughest thing? Is it facing prejudice? Is it being able to restrain when you're faced with it? Or are there other difficulties? I think it's being able to restrain yourself from acting on the plethora of racism that comes your way. So in my experience, it's not hey, this person is a KKK member, right? In, at Morgan Stanley, this person just happened to be more direct. And he was direct because he knew he could say it. I was young enough that I would be like, eh, whatever, dude, I don't like you either. Just make sure my bonus is in place, right? <laughs> I was young enough then to kind of disregard it. I didn't have the experience to say to him, well, you know, that's illegal, even though I knew it. I was just like, oh, whatever. Did you catch me? All right, I'm done. That was my thing. Are my clients happy? Cool, I'm out. As I got older, I realized that most that I faced or the racism that I faced were microaggressions, comments about my hair. Um, why can't you wear an Afro? I used to date a girl who wore an Afro. So what? That's not, what does that have to do with me? So on some levels, it's not just racism, but sexism or um, comments about my husband's size. Like he, he came up to the office once and a white woman made a comment about how tall he was and how beautiful his arms were. Just microaggressions that up until I guess maybe four or five years ago, I wouldn't have even paid attention to. I would have just been like, eh, that's just them being funny or them being silly, but that's not what it was mm -hmm. at all. So. As you grow in this business, and I just had a conversation with a girlfriend of mine who's going to a firm that I know has a history of harassing their African-American employees. And I said that to her. You can take the job if you think the job is the right job, but just be aware and be able to and understand that there are going to be battles you don't fight. And then there are battles you don't have a choice but to fight because there's a person behind you that's coming up, that's yes. going to need to know that you fought that battle so they don't have to. At the firm that I asked for the layoff at, I fought that battle, not because I had to, because I could have just collected my check and been quiet, but I fought the battle because I watched them harass one of my younger colleagues to the point where she quit. And another colleague who was a male who quit. The woman that quit was Muslim. And they constantly mispronounced her name. They said all these things in her presence, things about curry and blah, blah, blah. All these things that were wrong and should have gotten them written up. But because the establishment was white and male, they kind of shrugged it off. So it was in my, it was in my spirit at that moment to start speaking up for people 
because there was never anybody to speak up for me. I was always the only black person. I was always the only black girl. It was always something, only black woman, only black mother. It was always me. And there was nobody to speak up for me. But at that moment, I could speak up for this one person because she was brilliant. And they lost a brilliant employee because they couldn't get over their biases. And that was the thing. I saw them, people who could take their business to the next level, including myself, but take their business to the next level, who clients, I had a client meet with the CEO of my firm because I said so. He wasn't gonna meet with anybody. I asked him to meet with them. So he met with them. And in that meeting, they mentioned every other white girl's name and never mentioned my name. So he took their business away. And then his reason was, you don't even know who works for you. You don't even know who helps me. That is a testament to who I am or who I am in this business. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't see that because the white male establishment they wanted to uplift the white women, not not the girl, the woman, whoever, who was actually doing the work. So I started speaking out about it. And it was something that I don't even know what happened to me. I woke up one morning and was like, this is wrong. And I have to fix it. Even if I get hurt by it, I have to fix it. Because there's going to be some other woman of color behind me who's going to get treated poorly. And I would have never said anything. And that's when I started filing actual reports about the things that I saw wrong that were happening that were unethical. Cause that's what it is. It's an ethical issue. It's a moral issue. And I started filing complaints about it. What would you say to people who say uh, racism and prejudice no longer exists in America? I'd say there's a bridge in Brooklyn and I own it, and I would like to sell it to you. <laughs> Girl, because <laughs> if there's anything we can we can pinpoint, and not just people of Af not just Afro descendants, I'll say it that way, but anyone who is a person of color in this country can say is racism isn't going anywhere because we never address it. When we address it, we're told to be quiet. Look at this football player, Colin Kaepernick. He doesn't have to say anything. He hasn't actually said a lot. Mm -hmm. But what he has said has been important. And the white male establishment has told him to be quiet. Nobody wants to hear this. You're a billionaire. You're a millionaire. You shouldn't speak on it. But it's not my job as a person of color to do the work. It's white people's job to do the work because they're the ones who make the change and it has to happen. You know, I have had, I've had such interest. I went to a predominantly white institution and I've had so many conversations with my friends who are white, who didn't get it or didn't understand even in 1992 when we were in college, why the black students stayed together. They were only at 1.15 or 20 of us and we stayed together. They didn't get it. We, we just thought y'all were all friends. No, we were protecting each other. You know, I went to, in the school I went to, it's funny because I had this conversation with one of my girlfriends who is white. I was like, do you remember, and I won't say the girl's name, so-and-so, and they were like, yeah, we remember her. You and you guys didn't get along. I said, I didn't dislike her. I didn't know her. But what I knew about her was that 
she was one of the few people who took the one African-American history class. And she sat in that class and justified racism on a regular basis. She also announced to the class that her father was a grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. In a classroom full of blacks, Hispanics, and people from Japan, you sit there and you say that. And you make the comment, slavery wasn't that bad. Well, that person and I will never be friends. Not because I have something against her personally, but because she didn't get it. Right. And she didn't want to. Right, that's and most my important. Friends, my friends were like, we didn't know that. We just thought you didn't like her. No, I didn't dislike her. I just knew my safety in the South was in jeopardy because of her. And so I stayed away. So it's interesting to have these conversations with people that I've known for 20 some odd years. I graduated in 1996. We've been friends since for 20 years. And in 20 years, they didn't know these things, but they never thought to ask them right. because we lived in this bubble and they were like, Christian's my friend. They didn't, and I hate this, they didn't see color. They saw me as a black person, but they didn't, and we were just friends. We were all just friends. We were college students and we were friends, but they didn't realize that though I'm your friend, I'm still experiencing this thing outside of the bubble. I've had the conversation with administration at my, at my, the university I attended that they don't get it. The black students live in a bubble inside a bubble. We have to close ourselves off from everybody else because if we don't, we tend to get hurt. You all didn't see it because we didn't let it. And I think that's something that black people do as a form of protection. Wherever we go, if there's one of us, we're like, hey, how you doing? That's my homie. We don't even have to know each other. Now we homies because right. there's two of us in here right. and we need to have each other's back. Mm -hmm. When I was... Um, when I was being harassed at the last firm, at my old firm, it was the black guys that held me up. Because when I was like, I'm just gonna quit, they were like, there's money on the table. Get the money, then you leave. They were the ones who held me up. All of the white men who cheered me on in meetings because they got deals from it, they didn't have my back. I was, the day I was laid off in the elevator, one of the guys, who, if you met him two years ago, he would be like, Krishna is my best friend, my homegirl, my da, 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 da. He stood in that elevator and said nothing. He stood right behind me and said nothing. And when we left the building, we left together. And he didn't say anything. He called me, I think like a week later. And I sent him the voicemail. So it's just, you know, it's one of those things. Would you recommend that young folks today consider a career on Wall Street? Yes. I would never tell young people not to pursue this business because the only way this business changes is when there are more of us that are vocal, that are super professional, that when we take on a, a deal, a client, whatever part of the business you're in, that you shine so bright, they can't help but hate you. And I really feel like, and that's not tooting my own horn, but I do feel like that was the case with me. I, sh I was a bright star and the people who didn't like that, they wanted somebody else to be a bright star. They didn't want me to be the face of that firm. And it's, it's bitten them in the butt quite a, f quite a few times since I've left. 
And I'm okay with that. Like, I'm just like, you should have thought about that before you let somebody harass me constantly. Because I just did my job. For five, for the first five years, I did my job. Those last two years are when you let somebody get in my face about things. And that didn't make any sense. So I would never tell any per, young person of color to stay away from this business. There's money to be made in this business. You will be successful if you put your mind to it. And you just have to remember that putting your mind to it also includes helping the person that's behind you. Being able to say, I do my job, I'm awesome at it, but some things have to change. And being fearless in that. It took me a long time to get to the place where I was fearless in saying, I'm not going to let you talk bad about other black people or this or that. Don't talk about my hair. It took a long time. It took too long. And I didn't, I come from a background where it shouldn't have taken me that long, but I was just like, I'm trying to collect this money, you know? Yeah. And, and that, you know, I was okay with my 1% life as long as nobody changed, you know, jeopardized it. So I had to be less. Is it true that everybody on Wall Street starts out over six figures? No, that's so not true. <laughs> that is the absolute biggest lie ever. You can come into a firm. So I left my firm at high six figures, mid six figures, I guess. You can come into a firm, especially young people with no experience and you'll come in at 60 or 65, depending on what part of the business you're in. So when I was in retail, you know, that means I, that means I was dealing with the public, like selling stock to everyday people, like one-on-one -on -one people. When I came in, you didn't make that kind of money. I made that kind of money later. But I think I came in in 93-ish, maybe making, Maybe making fifty-five, sixty thousand dollars. Because everybody thinks that you know, Monday you get the job on Wall Street. Tuesday you pick up the Benz or the Beamer. Wednesday you get the uh, Rolex. Thursday, and because Wall Street is just, do do you think that Wall Street has levels, depending on where you go. So if you start at a Goldman Sachs, you might, might if you can get in, because Goldman is like getting into the Feds. If you can get into Goldman, you might be able to start at um, $100,000, maybe. Maybe. Everybody doesn't. It really comes with how you build your background, right? So if you in college, you're in college, and you take all the internships at the biggest banks, they do big bank work, not like you're just getting coffee and stuff. Right. You might be able to finesse that. Now, I know plenty of college students who have gotten out and had big salaries, but that's not all of them. That's not all of them. And in all honesty, it makes you a better person in the business if you don't come out making two, come out of school and making $200,000. Because what do you aspire to at that point? You, you remain a part of that, um, that culture, that 90s culture of bling and, you know, all that stuff. If you come out and you have to not struggle, because $85,000 is not struggling, even in New York is not struggling. You make $85,000 and you build yourself up and you build a reputation for yourself, that reputation lasts much longer than that two or three or four or $600,000. It lasts much longer. I've been out of the 
big corporate, and I mean, I'm going back very soon, but big corporate for two years. And a friend of mine is bringing me back. And the rumor, because Wall Street is like little, the rumor has already hit that I'm coming back. And I've heard from three clients, three former clients. If you come back, wherever you go, I'm going to go. And I'm like, what are you guys talking about? And they were like, don't play coy with us. We know. <laughs> and I haven't even accepted a deal yet. It was just one of those things. Your reputation follows you much longer. And, I mean, you can see it with people like Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff, if he lives to be 900, his reputation will live for those 900 years. People don't forget. When there was um, recently a guy I know was arrested um, for some bad stuff he did. He, I think he got like two or three years in jail. But when he gets out in two or three years, people are always going to remember that. They'll always remember it. I have a girlfriend who she took a she took a break. We worked together, and she was very stressed out because of the harassment that she was facing. So she quit. And when she decided to come back in the business, all her former clients were like, "But we heard that you just wanted to be with your horses. Your reputation will follow you forever." That two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand, four hundred thousand dollars. When they take that away, because Wall Street is the wonderful place for layoffs. When they take that away, you can't reclaim that. But if you've been good to whoever you served in terms of clients, you'll come back. You'll always come back. Okay. So, last question: Do you think there will ever be another Black Wall Street? Oh, this question is very dear to my heart. I hope so. And I see a lot of move, excuse me, towards it. Um, I hope. So I've hosted a few events to get people to start banking black and do, you know, buying through black businesses and supporting black businesses. So I hope those events, those small little things, those little grains of sand mm -hmm. are part of this, this movement that I'm so proud that black people are actually moving towards. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think that black people realize just how much capital and power they have in that capital. So my prayer is that we stop being crabs in a barrel and actually move <laughs> towards it. And I mean Afro-descendants from the diaspora. I mean Africans from Africa. Like we have so much wealth, but we're so busy fighting each other because that's what they want us to do that we don't even get there. So I'm hoping that these little grains of sand that I've placed and you placed and Michelle has placed that we're all placing mm -hmm. get us to a space where even if it's not Black Wall Street in the sense of like that one small town, but that it's international and that it is internet based that we know hey, I need I, I'm a nutritionist on the side. Oh, I need that coaching. Let me call Krishna. Krishna can't do it. She knows somebody who's black that can. So is my prayer is one of the things I pray on real hard <laughs> that we do get back to that. Um, and, you know, I see it. I see the small steps. I don't know how long it's going to take, so but I hope. And those small steps are that we bank black. Bank black, buy black when we can, support black businesses 
that aren't traditional, right? So most people don't won't go to a black doctor. Find the black doctor. The black doctor knows the black nutritionist. The black nutritionist knows the black fitness trainer. The black fitness trainer knows the black owned gym. Follow the follow the paper. That's a Wall Street term. Follow the paper. Because when you follow the paper, you get what you want. You get it all in in um in steps. So I'm a Zumba instructor and I'm a um and I am a nutritionist and I run a small business that caters to women of color, mothers specifically, and their fitness needs and their wellness needs. You know me, then I know trainers. You don't have to hire a white trainer because I can put you in place for a trainer. You want to take a Zumba class? I can teach you a Zumba class. You want a black yogi? I have a black yogi. You know, I think we get so... I don't know if it's, um, if it's ego or... If it's just so ingrained in the white supremacy is so ingrained in us that we can't get past those small things. But some, I you think know? it's just laziness be- yeah. because you actually have to put the search in. Right. You, you actually have to ask the question. I agree. I mean, and I, but for some people, I think so. I've been a part of all these black groups and sisterhood groups and blah 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 and what I find is so I'll even use her power hustle right Michelle specifically places a day on Wednesday when it's what you're selling right Mm -hmm. what are you selling Mm -hmm. in that what are you selling I feel like people just leave their link and other people don't respond Mm -hmm. right I've bought from people in that link everybody in the Everybody that responds is not for me. I don't need a coaching class. I don't need this. But if I know somebody who does, I go back to that link and I share it. What I think happens then is if I share it with you and you don't follow up, you drop the ball in us getting back to where we control our money and what we do. A perfect example, um, acquaintances that I have through, you know, social media, Recently, or just this past Saturday, had um, a fundraiser for their for their um, radio station, TK in the AM. They offered a sponsorship package for two hundred dollars. I gave it to all of my friends who are writers, who are musicians, who who would know who would need to advertise more on the radio, right? None of them followed through. But they'll be the same people that go, nobody comes to my events. Black people don't support my events. But you don't support black people's events. I didn't have a need for that $200 sponsorship. I also couldn't go to the event. But I bought a ticket. It cost me $20. It was $20 I needed to get my nails filled. But I bought the ticket because... I can't be there. I just want to support you. Mm-hmm. On the same notion, they put out a notebook and it said um, affirmations, air outs, and motivation. A black, plain black little notebook that was written on red. I said, oh, the notebook is $7. I'll buy the notebook too. And then I tweeted out the notebook. I'm just going to put things about my business in here. It doesn't take a lot to support people. Mm-hmm. Especially in this day and age where you don't have to physically go anywhere. Right. <laughs> it's all by button. 
It's all buttons. I can say, you know what? And I will. After we're done, I'll go. I just got off with that Anita live. Blah, 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 blah. Check her out. You know why? Because that means people who follow me, and there's not a whole lot of people follow me, will follow you. They want to know what the heck I was talking about. Because people always go, Krishna, you're so funny. They're going to know I told some crazy joke, and they're going to want to know what that <laughs> joke is, right? It's important. It's so important. Everything's not for everybody, and I can't support everybody, but I support where I can, whether it be just retweets or putting it up on my Facebook page and tagging people I know can use it. And I get really upset when people don't follow through. I mean, you'll see it on my Facebook page. I get so upset with people. Like, I put you in contact with somebody and you didn't do it. Oh, it's frustrating to me. Because everybody's see. talking big. You saw it. You already saw it. That's probably like three or four times since we've become friends. I I, it drives I me crazy. She be checking people. I said, give them a minute. Can they have three days? No. No. No, you can't have three days. You can have one full day to process. And even if you just send the email. You know, and I think a lot of this is my Wall Street life right my because i'm back in the business just not on corporate side i'm going back to corporate probably in december it's one of my biggest pet peeves that people don't follow through because i've watched money take change places and you know how money changes places you got to pick up the phone if i call you and you send me the voicemail you don't want this money if I call you from a block number and you worry that that's your creditor and so you don't pick up the phone, you don't want the money. Pick up the phone. If it's your creditor, hang up the damn phone. But pick up the phone. If I send you a text message, pick up, respond to the text message. Not five days later. The same night. I had a friend text me the other night. Now, I have this rule since school has started that I'm turning off my phone at 9 o'clock. She texted me, and it wasn't even a big deal. The next morning when I turned my phone on, she was, I didn't even get out of bed. I was like, girl, you know my phone was off at 9 o'clock. But here's the answer you need. Because that's the responsible thing to do. Business is about being responsible. It's about taking the extra step to get what you want and to help the other person. You can't get back to Black Wall Street if you don't pick up your phone. That is true. You any, can't get if you don't answer the email. Any final words? Um, let's see. Don't be shy about being on Wall Street, young people. Seek out those opportunities because those opportunities turn into bigger opportunities. They have for me. I'm a lot of years in the business. <laughs> <laughs> I think this year makes 19 years, so almost 20 years in the business. And it's been, for all the downs, there have been so many ups. I've met so many amazing people. I've sat in the presence of every Wall Street um, guru you can think of. Don't, and those people have made drop. me better. Name drop three or four. Oh, let's see. Um, I'll name drop one because everybody knows this one. I had for three years, every quarter, Every quarter for three years, I sat with, um, I don't even want to say, <laughs> with Warren Buffett. What? So, yes, and my mother yelled at me every quarter for three years. Why did you give up your resume? <laughs> <laughs> so, 
There are so many amazing things that happen when you enter this world. It's not simply about the money. You build amazing friendships, black and otherwise, but you build amazing friendships. You take the time to build an amazing reputation because that will always follow you and the money comes. Um, from the time I left to now re-entering, my Wall Street friends have supported Baobab Wellness, which is my fitness wellness business outside, simply on the strength of who I am. So there's so much to be offered and you just have to know when to pick your battles and pick them wisely, but fight them strong so that you in the end come out the victor no matter what. I think that's it. <laughs> Didn't I tell you there was nothing that I could do to set you up for that? That was the Chris baby, Krishner Davenport. Have you ever had any of those experiences in corporate America? Wasn't she brutally honest? All of that information is necessary for us to grow, for each one to help one. And Chris is down. She is on the team. She and I would love to hear from you. Leave your feedback in the comment section below. Any experiences that you have that relate to anything she shared, I'd love to hear it. Leave it in the comment section below and consider joining my email list over at thatanitalive.com. You may win the next t-shirt, get to vote on the next episode that gets released, or get to decide who gets interviewed next.